Welcome to New Life Church's weekly message. New Life Church's mission is to lead people into a transforming relationship with Jesus through the gospel. This week, speaker Pastor Steve Benninger teaches from John chapter 10 in the series, Portraits, Jesus, Who Are You? You can find the sermon outline and video for this message at enewlife.com or the New Life Church Kahana mobile app. Well, who is Jesus Christ? That is the question of the ages. Sure, there are other questions that can be asked, important ones, but none nearly as critical as this question. Jesus, who are you? Who are you? What people believe about Jesus is the defining belief of their lives and of their eternity. Get this one right, and being wrong about other stuff will eventually fade away into oblivion. Get this one wrong, and ultimately it won't matter what else you were right about. This is the ball game, really, that we believe the truth about the identity of Jesus of Nazareth. And really there aren't a lot of options, not real, genuine, bona fide options. It's become popular in our day to view Jesus as a great teacher or an inspiring moral example. Problem is, Jesus didn't really leave that as an option. As C.S. Lewis famously wrote in the book Mere Christianity, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus, namely that I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. You see, Jesus was either a raving lunatic, or he was an epic liar, or he was who he claimed to be, the Lord of the universe. Lunatic, liar, or Lord. There are no other options. Everybody must decide which of those three describes Jesus in their mind and then respond accordingly. Now, the Jewish people and the religious leaders of Jesus' day understood this, and after hearing him talk on this occasion, it records their response in John 10, 19. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words, and many of them said, He has a demon and he is insane. Why listen to him? But others said, These are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? What you don't hear anybody saying is, I think I'm going to add Jesus to the list of my top ten most admired people. No. Either you walk away shaking your head at his audacity or his self-delusion, or you fall at his feet and worship him as God and give him your life. Because of what he claimed for himself, those are really the only options. 
And he certainly said a lot about himself in this book of John. Many of you have told me that you're learning so much about Jesus through our study together. And I'm so glad of that. We're going to see more today. As we come to chapter 10 of the book of John, we see a chapter division between chapter 9 and 10. But really there's no break here. It's the same conversation. Just continuing on. You recall that Jesus had just healed the man born blind. Remember this? And what day did he heal him on? Sabbath day. Intentionally so. And of course that had stirred up the authorities. And the the healed man had then given a bold testimony of his healing to the Pharisees. And as a result, he got himself tossed out of the synagogue. But Jesus, the good shepherd, had cycled back to him, hadn't he? And led him to faith. And so... This man's spiritual eyes were being open to the truth, just as his physical eyes had been open. But the Pharisees were becoming increasingly blind, more and more so to the truth, which was, in effect, God's judgment on their unbelief. And so now, here in chapter 10, Jesus continues his self-revelation. He continues to unveil all that he is, all that he came to be, in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. And there are three themes, three prominent themes that emerge from his lips in this chapter. I am the good shepherd, I am the door to the sheepfold, and I am God, God the Son with power over life and death. And so we're going to look deeper at each of these and you can take the study guide out if you haven't done so yet and you can track with me this morning. As we begin by talking about Jesus, the good shepherd. Jesus is the good shepherd. Now, how many of you have ever been employed as a shepherd? Can I see your hands? How many of you have ever known a shepherd? Okay, this is kind of a stretch for us, right? We don't live in an agrarian society as as they did. But in that day, everybody knew a shepherd. Many families owned a flock of sheep which of course were raised for their wool and other things. And oftentimes a village would have kind of a community sheepfold that would house several flocks owned by several different families. And the sheepfold was a very simple enclosure, usually made out of rocks and stone. And it was designed just to have one single doorway, one single opening. And the families would hire a a watchman or a a gatekeeper to keep watch over their flocks by night and keep predators out and keep thieves away. And then every morning, the shepherds of each flock would show up and they would check in with the gatekeeper. And one by one, the shepherds would stand at the entryway and they would make a sound that they had trained their sheep to recognize. And upon hearing that familiar call in that familiar voice, their particular sheep would begin to separate from the others and would move towards the entryway, move towards the door, and they would begin to file out, and the shepherd would take them out then for grazing. Then the next shepherd would come, and he would do the same, and then the next, until finally the sheepfold was emptied out. So with that understanding, now listen again to how Jesus opens this dialogue in verse 1. Truly, truly, I say to you, He who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. 
And when he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. So Jesus is making reference to a shepherd here, and who is the shepherd? Well, he leaves no doubt in verse 11. He says, I am the good shepherd. Again in verse 14, I am the good shepherd. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. He's the good shepherd. And in this dialogue, he explains what he means by that and who his sheep are and what he's going to do for them and where his sheep are going to end up. And interestingly, in so doing, he details out a number of threats to the sheep, doesn't he? There are many. Uh, He talks about strangers. People who come in posing as their shepherd and attempting to lure the sheep away. He talks about wolves who seek to enter the sheepfold and snatch the weak ones and devour them and scatter the rest. He talks about hired hands who are paid to care for the sheep, but whose caring has limits because they're just in it for the money. He talks about thieves and robbers who seek under the cover of darkness to slip over the wall at night and steal away a sheep or two to take and go sell for profit the next day. And he talks about someone that he calls the thief. The thief who also has designs on these sheep for his own nefarious purposes. All of these pose potential threats to the safety and the well-being of the sheep. And so how are the sheep going to defend themselves? I mean, sheep are kind of pitiful. <laughs> they, they don't have a lot of defense. So who's going to protect them? And Jesus is saying, I will. I'm the good shepherd. I will protect the sheep. That's what he does. That's what shepherds do because they care for the sheep. This shepherd is not in it for the money. He's not a poser with evil intentions. He's not like the previous so-called shepherds who are more concerned about feeding themselves than feeding the sheep. This shepherd is brave and courageous, and he's got such a special relationship with his sheep that the thought of exposing them to harm fills him with resolve to keep them safe at any cost, even the cost of his own life. And so Jesus is the shepherd. Oh, how I hope you love the shepherd. I hope you love the shepherd. And you know what? The shepherd is gathering his flock. He is gathering his flock. That's what he's been doing for centuries, gathering his flock to himself. He's calling his sheep. His sheep know him. He cares for them. And today I want us to see several aspects of this very special relationship between this exceedingly good shepherd and his beloved sheep. And the first is this, the good shepherd knows his sheep. The good shepherd knows his sheep. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd and I know my own. And my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. Verse 27, my sheep hear my voice and what? I know them. Friends, be be assured of this today. Jesus knows who his people are. He does. In those days, it wasn't uncommon for a shepherd to actually name each of his sheep. You're Charlie, and you're Phil, and you're Anita. And he would call them each by name when it was time to head out to pasture. 
Sometimes the name would reflect an identifying mark that distinguished that little lamb from the rest, like maybe a, uh, a blotch on their ear or a blemish on their wool or, or maybe a limp. Come on, Gimpy, it's time. It's time for lunch. It's going to be great today. Come on. And so a sweet bond of affection would develop between shepherd and sheep. And I want to remind you today that if you are in Jesus' flock, He knows you. He knows your name. He knows you. He's been watching over you all of your life. He knows all of your little quirks. He knows your blemishes. He knows your limps. And He cares for you anyway. Amen? He's the good shepherd. You're not just a nameless, faceless, nondescript number in the vast flock of humanity. No, no. You mean something to him. He knows you personally. The shepherd knows his sheep. But not only that, second, the good shepherd leads his sheep. He leads his sheep. Verse 3, the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out. And when he has brought out all his own, he goes before them. That's leadership. And the sheep follow him for they know his voice. This is perhaps the most comforting and encouraging aspect of Christ's shepherding to me in recent months. He's leading me. He's leading me. Like the old hymn by Joseph Gilmore says, He leadeth me, O blessed thought, O words with heavenly comfort fraught. Whate'er I do, wherever, wherever I be, still tis God's hand that leadeth me. And I don't know about you, but I need to be led. I'm a sheep. <laughs> I'm a dumb sheep, prone to wander, prone to go my own way. But all the way, my shepherd leads me. Because I'm his sheep, when I do veer off to the left or when I veer off to the right, he lovingly corrects me and brings me back. I don't know where I'd be apart from the correcting, loving leadership of my shepherd I'd probably be all snarled up in some bramble bush somewhere. And so would you. The good shepherd knows us, amen? He leads us. Third, the good shepherd dies for his sheep. This is what sets our shepherd apart from other shepherds. Our shepherd died for us in order to save us and protect us from our most dangerous enemies. Verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who doesn't own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and he cares nothing for the sheep. But verse 15, I lay down my life for the sheep. Listen to me, no one has ever shepherded you like this shepherd. No one else, even in the Bible, cared for their sheep to this extent. I think about David, the great shepherd boy who became king. Yes, he risked much in order to protect his sheep from the roaring lion and from the, the menacing bear. Remember that story? But you know what? He stopped short of giving his life. But this one, this one, David's greater son, the true and better shepherd was willing to not just fight but die 
in the service of his flock. When the wolves of sin and death threaten to enter the sheepfold and scatter us and devour our souls, when the ancient thief came to try and steal away our safety and our security and our life, our great shepherd laid himself down at the entrance to the fold and blocked their access and said, over my dead body, you will not have them. And then he did lay down his life to secure our eternal protection. He's called the good shepherd. I think that's an understatement, don't you? I think he's the great shepherd, the superlative shepherd, the awesome shepherd, the supremely loving shepherd of his sheep. I mean, who else would you want caring for your soul today? Than this one. And then we see a couple of theological truths that flow out of this analogy of the Good Shepherd. Letter D, the Good Shepherd is forming one flock out of two. Did you notice this? Verse 16, I have other sheep that are not of this fold, and I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock and one Shepherd, And of course, this is the great teaching that Jesus is creating, forming a single unified flock consisting of both Jews and Gentiles. He's always been intent on this. It was his plan from the very beginning. It's why we do missions. I have other sheep, not of this fold. It's, it's why we should be thankful that Europeans had a heart for missions several centuries ago so that our Gentile forebears on this side of the Atlantic might hear the good news about the good shepherd and believe and become part of his one flock. He's forming one flock out of two. And then letter E, the good shepherd secures the destiny of his sheep. And I love this section. This was uh, when I was a kid in Awana. I remember memorizing these verses. And they were comforting to me then. And they're still comforting to me now. Verse 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And my Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Now, I know that a number of you who were raised in church perhaps were raised with a particular perspective. And some of you were taught that a Christian can actually lose or forfeit his or her salvation by either committing a certain sin or sinning too much or defecting from the faith or from the church. And certainly we've all probably known people, right, who have fallen away. And so losing salvation can seem to be an idea that explains what happened to them. Well, they, they, they lost their salvation. If that is your belief today, that salvation once truly gained can be lost, can be forfeited, then you're going to have to grapple with texts like this one right here. Because it sure sounds, sounds like Jesus has a hold of his people and won't let go. We're safe in his hands, it says, and in the Father's hands. And no one is able to snatch his people out of their combined grip. Plus, the Bible says we're also sealed by the Holy Spirit. So all three Trinity members have hold of us. And so if this text runs counter to what you were taught, 
I want to give you a few things to think about and ponder about on this topic, okay? Just, just listen. First, if it is true, if it is true that people can do nothing to earn their salvation, that it's all of grace and not of works, doesn't it follow that we could also do nothing to lose our salvation since it is purely a work of God? You think about that. Second, is it possible that that person who sure seemed to be saved, who professed as much with their mouth, who got baptized perhaps, who came to church and read the Bible and prayed, maybe even witnessed to other people, but but has now fallen away, is it possible that that person was never actually truly born again? Is that possible? Is there any precedent in the Bible of someone who looked the part talk the part, even had other people convinced but was later revealed to have never been a genuine believer? Do we see anything like that in the Bible? Do we see any tares among the wheat? Third, doesn't salvation fundamentally change people at the very core of their being? Things that can't really be reversed or undone? Like being declared righteous before God, being given a new status as his adopted son or his adopted daughter? How about receiving that new heart of flesh that replaced that old, hard, stony heart? How about my placement into his family, into his kingdom, into Christ? Doesn't the notion of losing your salvation necessitate undoing some things that really can't be undone? Can my sins really be unforgiven or unpardoned? Number four, what would it say about God's beautiful work of salvation if it wasn't really decisive or permanent or eternal, but contingent and temporary and conditional? What would it say about Jesus' statement on the cross? It is nearly almost done. You just need to make sure that you're, you know. And then fifth, isn't there an explanation that's more consistent with the teaching of Jesus and Paul and John and Peter and the writer of Hebrews? And I I believe there is. The teaching held by believers for many centuries, that genuine salvation, if you really have it, truly is a forever possession. But that somebody's profession to believe in Jesus and be saved must be validated over time, must be verified over time by a lifestyle that reflects ongoing devotion to Christ and his word and his church. As I heard John Piper say once, Jesus' pledge is not to keep his people saved even if they stop believing. Rather, it's to keep his true people believing no matter what happens to them in this life or in the next. And so right here in John 10, 27 through 29, we have the doctrine of the perseverance of all of God's true people, the preservation of the true saints of the Lord, that Jesus will keep us believing in him and will hold on to us forever, no matter what happens in this life or in the next. You can't take that away. Of course, a big question follows, right? How do you know if you're one of his sheep? How do you know if you're truly in his eternal flock that will be protected by he and his father forever? And he gives several clues right here in this section. How do I know if I'm in Jesus' flock? Well, you recognize the voice of your shepherd. My sheep 
Hear my voice. When Jesus speaks through his word, you're going, I know that voice. It's like uh, when we were at Kings Island, my, my uh, family was younger, and we got separated from our son at Kings Island. You know, there's tens of thousands of people around. We had that parental nervousness. And then I heard a voice in the crowd amongst thousands of voices. It's like, I know that voice. <laughs> That's my son. We were reunited with him. The sheep hear his voice. They know that voice. It's like, that's the Lord. That's my Lord. His sheep trust him. Trust their shepherd to lead them. Sheep follow their shepherd. They follow him. They trust him. They don't follow strangers. They flee from strangers. Jesus' sheep experience his abundant life. Are you one of Jesus' sheep? Man, I hope so. I hope you're in his flock. As the old chorus suggests, if you're saved and you know it, then your life will surely show it. Here's a second analogy Jesus applies to himself here in this passage. And he's either mixing metaphors, which he didn't mind doing, or he's adding to this existing picture of him as the good shepherd. And I think he's doing that. Number two, Jesus is the good shepherd who is also the door. (laughs) Verse seven, so Jesus again said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. So the good shepherd, I'm the door. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and he will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal kill and destroy but I came that they may have life and have it abundantly so sometimes when a shepherd was out grazing his sheep and he'd found a a good patch of pasture land for them to feed on that could sustain them for several days well that night instead of hauling the whole flock all the way back to the sheep pen in the village what he would do is he would cobble together kind of a makeshift pen out of some stones and some rocks and some Um, thorn bushes that he could find so that they could just stay in that area for another day or two. And interestingly, in that case, since there would be no no watchman, no gatekeeper to keep an eye on things during the night, the shepherd would actually lay down at the entrance to that makeshift sheepfold to keep the sheep from wandering out in the night or critters from wandering in. And so guess what? In that situation, it could be said that the shepherd was also the door. I mean, I think that's cool. I don't know if you think that's cool or not, but I certainly do. The shepherd is the gate. The gate was the way in. It was the only way in. It was also the way out to the pasture, to feeding and nourishment and rest and life. And Jesus was claiming to be the gate or the door to both, to salvation and to abundant life. By the way, John 10.10 is probably a verse that you should memorize in your life if you haven't already. If ever the contrast was clear between Jesus' intentions for people and Satan's intentions for people, it's right here. Make no mistake, Jesus wants you for himself. Satan wants you for himself. 
Jesus aims to protect your life as the good shepherd and nourish you and care for you and provide eternal rest and abundant life and gladness. And Satan aims to steal your life and your joy and kill you and destroy your soul in hell. Who do you want caring for your soul? (laughs) Who do you want to give your life to? I think we need to remember this when we're tempted to seek thrills by dabbling around in the occult or in mind-altering drugs or false religions or in the sins of the flesh that are so prevalent and ordered by the God of this world. His intentions are not good. They are to steal and kill and destroy all who are caught in his web of sin and deceit. But of course, he doesn't advertise that, right? He doesn't advertise his ultimate intentions for us. No, he simply dangles out there the promise of pleasure. But it's a trap. When tempted, we must run away from him, run away from the thief, and run into the arms of our good shepherd. Amen? Well, Jesus adds one more aspect to this analogy, one he has spoken about many times before. Number three, Jesus is the good shepherd who is also the door, who is also God, God the Son. (laughs) These these aren't puny little claims he makes here. These are gargantuan claims. It was reading these kinds of statements that caused C.S. Lewis to say that calling Jesus merely a good moral teacher was patronizing nonsense. Good moral teachers don't say stuff like this. I and the Father are one. Claiming oneness with God. People in our day might not understand what he meant by that, but the Jews certainly understood because verse 31 says they picked up stones to stone him. They understood what he was claiming. If you've never read this in church history, read about the Arian controversy and the Council of Nicaea that took place, was convened by Constantine, took place in 325 A.D. to resolve the controversy. And the debate at that convention was about this very thing, How is Jesus related to God? Do we worship one God or two gods and Father and Son and I am in the Father and He's in me and I am the Father? What's that all about? How should we think about that? How should we talk about that? Very fascinating. And what came out of that was the Nicene Creed. Have you ever heard about that? You see, Jesus was claiming to be equal with God. Verse 32, Jesus answered them, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It's not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. And if Jesus had wanted to get out of this situation, all he had to do was go, Oh, wait, 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 I'm sorry. You've totally misunderstood me. But he didn't, did he? Because he was claiming to be God. Before Abraham was I am. That was his claim all along. Jesus claimed to be no less than God, equal, equal, equal with the Father. There were over 300 delegates at the Council of Nicaea, and the Nicene Creed that they came up with was adopted by all but three of those delegates. 
The Nicene Creed refuted the views of a guy named Arius, who was an elder at the church in Alexandria, Egypt, and he had been teaching a diminished view of Jesus, a smaller view of Jesus, that Jesus had a beginning, that he was born, that he was not equal with God, but less than God. But the council branded he and his followers heretics. Here's what the Nicene Creed states. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. And we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten and not made, of the same essence as the Father. Of the same essence as the Father. Do you hear it? Equal with God. Equal with God. Nothing less. And Arius was branded a heretic for teaching something other than that. Equal with God. And as God, Jesus claimed third to be the master of his fate. Verse 34, Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? Quoting from Psalms. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I'm the son of God? If I'm not doing the works of my Father, then don't believe me. But if I do them, even though you don't believe me, believe the works. Giving sight to blind people, healing a lame man, raising Lazarus from the dead. Believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father and again they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. Now I pick up on three things here. First, Jesus, did you notice, used this cool verbal maneuver to distract these people who were trying to stone him. He got them all distracted and messed up. Second, Jesus had a high view of the Bible. He had a high view of Scripture. Did you see that? Did you hear his phrase? Scripture cannot be broken. Jesus had a high view of the Bible. That's why I have a high view of the Bible, because Jesus had a high view of Scripture. He knew Scripture. He memorized Scripture. He quoted Scripture. He used Scripture to fend off lies and temptations. And he relied on the Scriptures for truth, and we should too. Amen? Get your theology from Jesus, including your theology of Scripture. And third, I couldn't help but notice that he's in control of his faith. I mean, how many times have the authorities wanted to haul him in and arrest him and charge him and, and have him executed? How many times have we seen this in the book of John? Why couldn't they pull it off? I mean, go get Jesus and bring him in. And they couldn't do it. Why? Because it wasn't his time. And they weren't in charge. He was in charge. He's the master of his fate. They were prevented from doing so even though they wanted to even though they had the power. You see, it would happen, but it would happen in Jesus' time and in Jesus' way. And it wouldn't be by stoning, it would be by crucifixion, by being lifted up. He was the master of his fate because he's God. And he orchestrates and controls events like this. It would include not just his arrest and his execution, but also his resurrection. For here we see once again yet another claim by Jesus to have authority over death and life. Verse 17, for this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may 
take it up again. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. I guess anybody could claim to have authority to lay down their life. I mean, you can jump off a building. You can step out off the curb in front of a bus. I guess in that sense, you have authority to lay down your life. But who has the authority to then make themselves undead? I'm not talking about zombies here. Who can do that? Only the author of life, amen? And Jesus is here claiming nothing less. Wow. Jesus, who are you? Who are you? That was the question people wanted to know. Who in the world are you? Talking like you talk, saying the things you say. Verse 24, the Jews gathered around him, like closing in on him, and said, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you! Like a thousand times already. You do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. And that is scary. And you need to let those words sink in. The reason you do not believe is because you are not my sheep. Thankfully, some other people weren't so stubborn. Some did believe, told about him at the very end. Verse 40, he went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first. There he remained. Many came to him and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. But the real question for us today is, is this, what do you believe about Jesus of Nazareth? What do you believe about him? In a moment, we're going to take communion together, and some couples are going to prepare for that right now. But before we do that, I want to ask you to locate yourself according to C.S. Lewis' scheme of options regarding Jesus. And so I ask, what do you believe about Jesus? Now knowing more fully what he had claimed for himself. What is your conclusion? Do you believe Jesus to be a liar? Like an imposter who was deliberately going around trying to deceive all the people? Do you think Jesus was a liar? Just wanting to fleece the flock? Do you think he was a lunatic? I mean, do you think like these people, he's, he's insane, he's a nutcase. Listen to him talk. Possessed by a demon. Do you believe Jesus was a liar? Do you believe he was a lunatic? Or do you believe that he was the Lord? The creator of all that is? The one who made us? The one who came to us and put on a robe of flesh and came and lived a perfect law-keeping life, loving God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, his entire life, loving his neighbor as himself, as the law commanded. The only one to ever live that perfect life And then die, lay down his life for us that we might be forgiven and saved and born again and become one of his sheep and become part of his flock. 
Do you believe he then rose from the grave to prove that he was indeed God? Take a moment and locate yourself, would you? Liar, lunatic, or Lord? If he's the Lord, give him your life. Give him your life. It's the only response that makes any sense. Say, Jesus, I give all that I know of me to all that I understand of you. I am yours. Lead me. Be my shepherd. Lead me into that abundant life that you have promised for your sheep. Will you, will you bow your heads with me for prayer? And as you do, would you just prepare your heart now to partake of communion? These pairs, these couples are going to come and take their place. And I want to pray for us. Lord Jesus, thank you for being the great shepherd of your sheep. And thank you for being willing to lay down your life for us. Lord, we come now to your table and we, we celebrate your death in our place, on our behalf, for our sins. And we celebrate your resurrection. Lord, this observance now is for your sheep, those who are your sheep. Lord, I pray if there are any in this room who are not yet true believers, born again, believers in Jesus Christ, that they would make their way to a prayer partner even now, Lord, and settle that question in their hearts. Lord, for we who know you and you know us, will you meet with us now in a special way? I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Visit us each week as we continue to journey through God's word and seek to know him better through the gospel. Our prayer is that the gospel has taken a deeper hold of you as we have studied the word together at New Life Church, where Jesus is front and center all the time.